are entering the Freedom Hut. Well, it's almost the 11th hour for funding the government, and it looks like the shutdown may happen. President Trump has rallied. Republicans are now going on offense. Are we going to get the wall? Are we willing to fight for it? That and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This This is The Buck Sexton Show. Where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. On June 16th, when I announced that I was running for president, and I came down the escalator, and I brought up, for the first time, illegal immigration. And I said, we got to build a wall. And everybody said, oh, that's crazy, that's crazy. We will build a wall. We will build a wall. Oh, we're going to build a wall, all right. The wall is peanuts. It's peanuts compared to what we're talking about. Who's going to pay for the wall? Mexico. They'll pay. 100%. 100%. We won't pay for the wall, and I want you to tell that to Mr. Trump. I said, yes, tell him that the wall just got 10 feet taller. Okay, tell him. Tell him. It's a vital tool. It's an important tool. It's maybe the most important tool that they can think of. We're going to build the wall. We have no choice. Build that wall. 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 Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. I just wanted us all to soak that all in for a moment here. Was there any ambiguity? Was there any hesitation? Any mealy mouth talking out of both sides of the mouth stuff from President Trump about the wall? No. Build the wall at the rallies. Build the wall. The promise that he made, the promise that elevated him ahead of a lot of other possible Republican contenders. It was immigration, not really trade, not really anything else. Immigration that first catapulted Trump to the very top of the list of Republican candidates. It was immigration, willingness to discuss it honestly and openly without fear of political uh, political correctness and the backlash from it. It was immigration that brought so many people to come out and vote for Trump despite the fact that he had no political background, that he is not by any means a policy wonk, that he can be a bit coarse, he is rough uh, rough around the edges, and so on and so forth. The president made a promise, a promise that could not have been more clear, that he repeated more than probably any other line at his rallies. And darn it, this president today realized, whether he knew all along or not, I don't know, realized that he better keep that promise. And as of right now, as I go on air, it looks like he will, looks like he's going to try to do so. Um president spoke today about this and went on the record once again that there better be funding for a border wall or else this is not this continuing resolution to fund the government is not going to happen and yes there will be a shutdown play uh, play 18 i've made my position very clear any measure 
that funds the government must include border security. Has to. Not for political purposes, but for, for our country, for the safety of our community. This is not merely my campaign promise. This is the promise every lawmaker made. It is the solemn promise to protect and defend the United States of America. And it is our sacred obligation. We have no choice. We have no choice, the president says. You see, I take the president at his word. I believe that this is a man who understands that it's what you say and whether you follow through on that or not on the issues that matter that determines who you are as a politician, who you are as a man. Yeah, he inflates things sometimes. Sure, he's got quite an ego. All that stuff is true. You're not, you're not unaware of that, neither am I. You know, would, would I say the things that Trump says? Would I go about my personal life the way Trump has? No. But this is about execution for the commander-in-chief, executing on the vision, executing on the agenda, the promises that he made, and a wall has to be a part of that. There's no way around it. And that's why... I think the the willingness to fight here is going to speak volumes. And make no mistake, 2020 hangs in the balance right now. What happens over the next few days will be something that we talk about for many months and even, a, even years to come. This is the moment. It's not going to get better when Nancy Pelosi is Speaker of the House. It's not going to get better as Republicans have to face another election cycle. Now is the time. Have the debate. Have the argument for the American people. And you know what a big part of that debate is? Walls work. I heard, you know, uh, earlier today, I, I keep hearing this line, the walls don't work. And I want to say, how, how do they come to that conclusion? President Trump says that walls work. Play 17. I am asking Congress to defend the border of our nation for a tiny fraction, tiny fraction of the cost Essential to border security is a powerful physical barrier. Walls work, whether we like it or not. They work better than anything. In Israel, 99.9% successful. Illegal immigration drives down wages for the neediest Americans. No one who calls themselves a progressive should support illegal immigration. Open borders hurts poor Americans more than anyone else in our society. In life, there are certain principles worth fighting for, principles that are more important than politics, party, or personal convenience. The safety and security and sovereignty of the United States is the most important principle of all. Safety, security, sovereignty of the people of the United States. This is a core issue for this republic. This is central and essential. When I hear politicians, Democrats, leftists, and yes, some weak Republicans, when I hear them saying that we don't have $5 billion for the wall, I want to ask, well, what do we have $5 billion for at this point? Let's look at the other things we're spending money on as a country. I mean, what has been the expansion in, in, in welfare programs since the Obama years to today? Where are we giving people money? You, you, you lose $80 billion a year in Medicare fraud. Medicare and Medicaid fraud, they estimate. $80 billion. 
We don't have five billion dollars to get a wall built. And and this this idea that the wall is going to be perfect is nonsense. If you have a lock on your door, you're not saying that somebody with a sledgehammer can't get through your front door. You're not saying it's going to keep out a SWAT team. And you're not even saying that the burglar can't find a way to maybe get through your window, right? All you're saying is, I'm going to make it harder. I'm not going to allow somebody to just get into my home without effort. And therefore, maybe give me some critical seconds if they try to break in my front door to get to a firearm, to call the police, to take shelter. You know, that's why you have a lock. Now, a lock is not perfect, but if you didn't have a lock on your front door, I know some of you probably live in parts of the country who are like, fuck, I don't need a lock. But for most of the rest of us, you probably have a lock on the door. And it's because it's a sound security measure. A wall in certain places is a sound security measure. It is helpful to the process of preventing people from entering the United States, including cartels and drug runners and, uh, you know, Sicarios, hitmen for the various cartels, including them, preventing them from coming into the country, as well as illegal immigrants who are violating our sovereignty and our laws. Because as Trump understands, and Democrats have abandoned this, by the way, they, they used to pretend that they were serious about this. But, you know, they're for any border security measure as long as it doesn't give us a secure border. Play 16. Every nation has not only the right, but the absolute duty to protect its borders and its citizens. A nation without borders is a nation not at all. Without borders, we have the reign of chaos, crime, cartels, and believe it or not, coyotes. I will not surrender this nation to the whims of criminal organizations who prey on the vulnerable, who hurt women and children, and who spread human misery and suffering. There are very real costs to the continued lawlessness at our border and the lawlessness and law-breaking that is abetted by the Democrats in this country, in the interior of the U.S., via sanctuary city policies, via all these different uh, legal activist groups running around, suing everyone and anyone who tries to enforce immigration law, making sure that those who come to the country illegally have even more resources at their disposal to evade law enforcement. Enough is enough. No other country would be expected to accept this, why should we? No other country says, yes, just show up, do what you want. Don't worry about it. We owe it to you. We owe it to you. Why exactly? We owe illegals what? The Democrats have embraced this as an all-out struggle for power. So they don't care what the real consequences are to the country. They don't care about the long-term implications other than this is votes, this is an ever-enlarging government bureaucracy, and this is power, power for the left, which is the one thing they are certain that they want, always and, and at all times. So I'm, I'm pleased that the president right now, and this could change, you know, I'll be, I'll be on air with you tomorrow, we'll have to see, that tomorrow night is the deadline. This could change. I, I, you know, yesterday you heard me on this show, I, I support the president. I was very unhappy with the stance that he was going to sign this continuing resolution. And the word got out. The word got out. Um, 
you know, now people know. Trump knows. He heard. Uh, and I've been in communication with people that have said that, you know, the president was paying very close attention to certain voices on this one. And it, it did not go unnoticed that some of his strongest supporters with the largest platforms uh, were saying that this was an unacceptable sellout of the base. I said it yesterday on Rising. I said it yesterday on this show, too. Selling out the base. Can't do it. Can't do it. Because I'm, I'm not here to support a person as some cult of personality. I'm here to talk about ideas and to talk about action that will make this a better country and will make people here safer, happier, and more prosperous. You know, we're about results, trying to push for results, convincing people of how to get to them. And the result we were promised was a wall. We weren't promised uh, a little bit of extra extra paint and you know spackle and whatever else they got to put on the old wall, a new wall. A new barrier, a new fence. Secure the border. Look at the ramifications that will have for the rest of our immigration policy. Look at how that will change many of the dynamics about interior enforcement and just restoring the rule of law in this country. Uh, I have some other breaking news that I have to share with you here, and that is, uh, and I wasn't didn't know we were going to talk about this till we went on air. Uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis has resigned. Not effective immediately. He's going to wait until a successful transition with a new Secretary of Defense and the Joint Chiefs of Staff chairman can come in. But Secretary of Defense Mattis is out. And it's not because he was tired of the long hours. I'll get into the details of that and more coming up. The president said what the um, what the Senate sent over is just kicking the ball, just kicking a can down the road. We want to solve this problem. We want to make sure we keep the government open and we're going to work to have that done and get something happen. Everyone knows the old line. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. But we're going to have to change that line. We're going to need a new one. The new line should be fool the American people four times, shame on Congress. Remember what we did March, right, the March big omnibus spending bill? We said, oh, no, we're not going to put the border wall funding on this bill because we're going to do it in September. Then we get to September. Oh, wait, wait a minute. We're not going to put it on this bill because we're going to do it on December 7th. And then December 7th comes. Wait a minute. We're not going to put the we're not going to keep our promise. We're not going to put the border funding wall money on that bill. And what do we learn today? Now they're talking about kicking it to February 8th. You've got to be kidding me. Yep, he's right. He's right. How many times do they get to pull the same maneuver? This is why I'm usually so cynical about the whole, oh, we'll fight the next time talk. You know, it's always we'll fight the next time. What about this time? What about getting the wall now? We had the Secure Fence Act passed in 2006. Bipartisan bill. We used to agree that stopping illegal immigration was good. But Democrats see the writing on the wall. They realize over the long term, illegal immigration benefits them, benefits their their base, their party, their power. They don't want this to stop. So we, we have there's no common ground to be reached with with the left on the issue of border security. They are not in favor of it. 
In fact, if anything, the only the only reason they want anyone to stop and check in is so they can eventually register for their state benefits, i.e. welfare programs. Democrats are all in favor of it, right? Taking taking from you, taking from the taxpayers, giving to people that just got here. We are supposed to be, it seems, according to the left, the world's soup kitchen. And unfortunately, over time, that has real costs and real consequences to our political cohesion and to the sense that a lot of people have that the government is just constantly being dishonest with them. You know, isn't it amazing? We have, on the one hand, all these people who are just so rule of law when it comes to the Logan Act, when it comes to the emoluments clause, when it comes to Federal Election Commission regulation and disclosure requirements. Ooh, you know, they're really, really up on all of that. You know, the Hatch Act, the Logan Act. You know, they, they talk about all these things. They, they, they're, they're strict when that, when that benefits something they want. But on immigration which also includes, I would note, a lot of document fraud, a lot of tax fraud, a lot of, you know, just go down the list. No, with illegal immigration, the law doesn't matter anymore. The law doesn't really count. There's really two sets of laws for citizens and non-citizens, and it's an unacceptable state of affairs. And it's not going to get any better. In fact, it's only going to get worse. The time to deal with this problem is now. I'm glad that Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows and a few others understand it. And thankfully, the president, look, I get it. He wants to, he wants to go on Christmas break. He wants to be with his family. The guy's got a lot, got a lot on his shoulders, but now is the time. Steve Scalise also getting in on the action here. Play 19. We're going to move today uh, to add language to uh, the bill that the Senate sent over on government funding to add $5 billion for the wall, as well as uh, the disaster relief funding that's been agreed upon by both the House and Senate uh, for the hurricanes and the wildfires. Uh, So we'll move that later on today. This is about securing America's border. Let's see if we can do it. We're about to enter a fight here, and we we voted for Trump because he's a fighter. I expect him to roll up the sleeves and throw down on this one. He promised a wall. I want that wall. And I'm not going to forget it one way or the other. Let's talk about General Mattis resigning when we come back from this break. General Mattis has resigned. This is a surprise, obviously. This was not anticipated. And this comes at uh, a time when there's already a lot of a lot of uh, concern over the president's decision to remove troops from Syria, which I'll talk to you about in some detail in the next hour, as well as the possibility of removing troops from other theaters of war. Uh, General Mattis has decided that he's not going to be a part of this. He's actually written a, a resignation letter, and I'll give you some of the uh, most important parts of that in a moment. But this administration has, let's be honest, had a number of very prominent individuals um, who, well, they're very people in very prominent roles who were not up to the task. There were some people who lasted a matter of days in very senior executive branch positions. Uh, there has been turnover is always high in the White House, but this White House is exceptionally high when it comes to turnover. 
Then again, President Trump has always said that he is non-traditional, that he is going to have to break some things in the establishment. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be messy. So I think we should give him some leeway for that. And I'm, I'm certainly willing to do that. But there have only been a few people in the administration who I think can, could be said to, to receive universal respect. Doesn't mean everyone likes them or agrees with them, but you know, near universal respect perhaps, but broadly, generally speaking, individuals who are um, impeccable in their credentials and are men or women of real skill, integrity, honor, and who are true public servants. And I think Mattis very much falls in that category. I knew of Mattis from when he was um, commanding in the uh, Iraq theater of operations. And, you know, the stories about him were things that people would tell each other and they they were always said with a certain pride, you know, the, the stories about about General Mattis. And some of you probably know the one where he's, he sat down with some, you know, tribal elders. I think it was in Iraq. And he said, uh, you know, I, I didn't bring... And whether this is an apocryphal quote or not, I, I don't know. I mean, this is people say, you know, Mattis said, you know, I'm, I'm basically, uh, I did not bring my artillery. I did not come here for war, you know, and I'm begging you with tears in my eyes, do not mess with me because I will take any of you out if you do. You know, I mean, he, he was... That was more or less the story. You know, the General Mattis was like, I'm, I'm a man who wants peace and stability, but if you mess with me, things will get really ugly really fast. And people call him Mad Dog Mattis, obviously. He's got all these different nicknames. And he's going to be leaving the administration. Let me read to you from some of his uh, resignation letter here. Dear Mr. President, I have been privileged to serve as our country's 26th Secretary of Defense which has allowed me to serve alongside our men and women of the department in defense of our citizens and our ideals. I am proud of the progress that has been made over the last two years on some of the key goals articulated in our national defense strategy, putting the department on a more sound budgetary footing, improving readiness and lethality in our forces, and reforming the department's business practices for greater performance. Our troops continue to provide the capabilities needed to prevail in conflict and sustain strong U.S. global influence. I believe we must be resolute and unambiguous in our approach to countries whose strategic interests are increasingly in tension with ours. It is clear that China and Russia, for example, want to shape a world consistent with their authoritarian model, gaining veto over, over other nations' economic, diplomatic, and security decisions to promote their own interests at the expense of their neighbors, America, and our allies. That is why we must use all the tools of American power to provide for the common defense. My views on treating allies with respect and also being clear-eyed about both malign actors and strategic competitors are strongly held and informed by over four decades of immersion in these issues. We must do everything possible to advance an international order that is most conducive to our security, prosperity, and values. And we are strengthened in this effort by the solidarity of our alliances. Because you have the right to a Secretary of Defense whose views are better aligned with yours on these and other subjects, I believe it is right for me to step down from my position. The end date for my tenure is February 28, 2019, 
a date that should allow sufficient time for a successor to be nominated and confirmed, as well as to make sure the department's interests are properly articulated and protected at upcoming events to include congressional posture hearings and the NATO Defense Ministerial Meeting in February. Further, that a full transition to a new Secretary of Defense occurs well in advance of the transition of Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in September to ensure stability within the department. I pledge my full effort to a smooth transition that ensures the needs and interests of 2.15 million service members and 732,079 Department of Defense civilians so that they receive undistracted attention of the department at all times so that they can fulfill their critical round-the-clock mission to protect the American people. I very much appreciate this opportunity to serve the nation and our men and women in uniform. Signed, General John Mattis. James Mattis, sorry, said John, my bad. Um, uh, this is not a this is not a departure that I think anybody's going to uh, think is a good idea. Well, maybe some people will. Um, Mattis was one of those figures in the administration that people looked to and said, there's a steady hand there and somebody who really knows the job. Now, there are 2.15 million service members. There are a lot of people out there with military skills and experience in this country and strategic wisdom, knowledge, that would be fantastic secretaries of defense. No question about it. And I have a lot of faith that President Trump, for this role in particular, will be sure to find someone who is an excellent pick. But this does come at a time when the opponents of this administration are going to pounce on this and say, see, even Mattis wasn't willing to stick it out. Even Mattis had had enough. And that will cause some damage to the administration. It's not, it's going to be something that I don't think stretches on for that long, but given the, the political sensitivity of the moment right now with the shutdown, the wall, and the Mueller investigation grinding on, this is not a particularly helpful uh, story for the administration. That said, I do have to just note as an aside that to do this, to decide that you can no longer in good uh, you know in good faith align yourself with the policy of the president and to say I'm just going to step down Mr. President thank you so much for the honor and opportunity and I'm going to make sure this is a smooth transition to resign in this way is the honorable thing to do and I can't remember the last time a a cabinet level official did this I can't remember maybe with a with a scandal but just just to offer a resignation in this way because they disagree with the policy of the administration. So, you know, Mattis is a man of honor, and this was the honorable thing he felt for him to do in the circumstances. Um, where does this go next? We'll have to see. But now the Syria decision has even more pressure on it. I'll go into detail about the pluses and minuses of pulling troops out of Syria in the next hour. I'll be right back. As Republicans from the suburbs, it would definitely hurt the Republican Party politically. We would be blamed for this. Maybe not in the states that the Freedom Caucus represents, but I can tell you in the hmm. states where the suburban areas, this is a bad issue. And if they're Why? looking for the, you know, the 2020 elections, they should keep that in mind. 
You got Congressman King there saying, oh, no, Republicans will get blamed for the shutdown. Well, is that true? And also, how much should we care? What are the politics at play here? We got an expert joining us, Harlan Hill. He's a political consultant. You also see him frequently on Fox News. And he will be guest hosting this show next week. The one and only Harlan Hill. Good to have you on, sir. Great to be with you, Buck. What do you make of this, man? I mean, here we are. You know, it looks like we're actually... We, we were heading into a shutdown, then we weren't, now we are again. Is this the right move? Where's the GOP on this? I mean, just break it down. Yeah, so look, it's this simple. I mean, for two years, we've had the House, we've had the Senate, and then we've had a president that was ready and willing to sign any funding for the wall for any border security that Republicans would send his way. And for two years, moderate Republicans have abdicated their responsibility and their electoral mandate to send the president a bill to sign on this issue. Uh, we've gotten some measly funding here and there, but by and large, they haven't been fulfilling what voters sent them to Washington to do on this issue. And uh, the president said earlier this year that if you, you know, next time we have one of these sh- uh, shutdown fights, I'm going to put my foot down. And, and if I have to, you know, take responsibility for the shutdown to get border security funding, I'm willing to do it. And what we saw this morning is the president's following through with his promise to the American people that he's going to take his electoral mandate very seriously. And, it, and it's simple. He can't back down on the wall. It is one of the core tenets of the 2016 Trump revolution, and voters expect him to deliver on this. And so now's the time, uh, because frankly, it's not going to get any easier with Nancy Pelosi as speaker next year to get any sort of border security funding. And so now is our opportunity, and uh, Republicans across the board need to step up. And if that means that we have to incur some short-term pain uh, through a shutdown, so be it. That's, that's, that's the reality we're living in. I mean, war game this out for me a little bit here. If, so let's say we do go into a shutdown midnight on Friday. Uh, what then should the administration be doing, and, and what, does, what does success look like? I mean, can you foresee... Uh, a, a future in which there are, in fact, a few billion dollars earmarked for wall construction? Or I just feel like Democrats know that to give Trump the ability to to follow through on that promise would be a an enormous, uh, an enormous wind at his back going into 2020. So I feel like they'll do anything to stop him. But, you know, how do you see this playing out? Well, you know, let's play uh, the, the calendar to our advantage. If this means that um, House and Senate Democrats need to stay in Washington um, to, you know, uh, head off a Republican vote on this, then make them stay through the Christmas break. I mean, that's that's, you know, that's the option that we have. Um, and By the way, so did you see did you see some of the politicians today? I think uh, one of them yeah. was uh, what, what's her name from up in Maine, who was like, oh, my gosh, we might actually have to work on the 20 20- on the 22nd or whatever. Like, yeah, yeah, a lot of, I'm working on the 26th. I mean, I got all kinds of stuff I got to do. Yeah, I mean, look, you guys have kicked the can down the road for two years on this issue. Now's the time to step up. And if you've got to work, the American people have got no sympathy for you, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, okay, because they're out there busting their behinds every day to make ends meet and to deliver for their bosses. Now's the time for Congress to deliver to their bosses, the American people. And um, so let's keep them. If they've got to stay in Washington to vote on this, if Democrats uh, in the Senate need to stay in Washington to filibuster this, because that's what we're up against, um, because we need 60 votes in the Senate, then, uh, then so be it. Make them do it. Let's run the clock out, however long this takes. 
But we need to, we need leadership in the House and the Senate to step up and do what's needed. Um, and if that means that they've got to, you know, forego some political expedience, you know what? That's fine. Let's show the American people how serious of an issue this is and that we're going to do whatever it takes um, to, to fix this problem. It's an issue of national security. You know, Harlan, we're going into a, a divided government scenario in, in 2019. First time that, that President Trump is going to be facing this. Well, you know, you're you're in close contact with the White House. I, I know you're you're talking to the folks over there on, on a regular basis. What, what is the strategy? I mean, how where does the president think that he might be able to make some gains? Uh, obviously, they're going to be have to, they're going to have to play a lot of defense with all the investigations and just the the conspiracy theories and the nuttiness that's going to come out of the Democrat led uh, House of Representatives. And we know this. They've already told us that that's that's essentially what's going to happen. But what can you tell us about, you know, what Trump, what Team Trump is going to try to do in 2019? And, and what does a successful 2019 look like? Well, uh, the president, I think, has always functioned the best when he doesn't um, maybe inflate the guidance of some of his advisors. And he relies on his um, instincts. And we saw that play out this week uh, with the troop withdrawal in Syria. And from the rumors that are being reported by both the Wall Street Journal and CNN this afternoon, it looks like he's going to be withdrawing troops from Afghanistan as well, potentially. That's the rumor that's going around. Um, and, you know, that flies in the face of what a lot of his, his advisors have suggested. Uh, but it fulfills another core promise of the Trump presidency. I think that we're going to continue to see this version of President Trump um, in going into 2019. Um, you know, he's the gloves are off. You know, we're, we're not going to uh, worry too much about, uh, you know, the, the short term uh, political consequences. We're going to just focus on fulfilling the promises of 2016. And because, you know, that's ultimately why he's in the White House. You know, he had a, he had a list of promises that gave him an electoral mandate when he won. And uh, I think the voters going into 2020, all the 60 plus million voters that, that cast a ballot for President Trump, are going to want to see him deliver across all those fronts. And there's, there's some real opportunity for us to cut through and find some commonality with Democrats in the House and the Senate, whether it's on infrastructure or health care or some other issues. Um, you know, the wall is a more complicated issue that I don't think that we're going to get Republicans, I'm sorry, Democrats to come to the table on. Um, but I think that the president will thread the needle and find, um, you know, some things to work with Democrats on. If they're willing participants, they're going to be willing partners at the table. And, and that's really the question if the president gets the wall i think he's in very good shape for 2020 do you have concerns though about 2020 if the president doesn't get the wall harlan the president's got to deliver on it and he knows that and that's why he's that's why he's willing to take responsibility for this shutdown i mean this poses an existential threat to his election prospects going into 2020 he knows he knows that he's got to deliver on the wall materially, not, you know, 100 miles here or there. He's got to deliver on it in some real way to uh, appease his voters because the base is frustrated. And I and he understands that. I understand that. Um, so it, we, we've reached a point of, of no return. Now's the time to deliver on it one way or another at all costs. And uh, that's what he's doing. Harlan Hill, everybody, political consultant. You can follow him on Twitter also. Very excited to have him in next week for a full show here on the Buck Saxon Show. Harlan, have a very Merry Christmas, my friend, and we'll be talking to you next week. Merry Christmas. Thank you. Team, we'll be right back. 
But now you've probably heard me talking about Snippy.com. It's a new social media site that isn't going to give third parties access to your private chats, isn't going to shadow ban you, none of the left-wing nonsense, just pure, unadulterated First Amendment expression on a digital platform. Snippy.com is a place where thousands of my listeners are now having open and honest conversations and just sharing information and thoughts. Thousands of you have joined Snippy.com, and I hope thousands more will go and look at it once again. It's an unbiased social media platform that's all about conversation and community. And it's totally free to join. You have nothing to lose. Go just check it out for yourself. Sign up today. All you do is give them your email, set up the account you want, and you're good to go. Let your opinion matter. No shadow banning and no suppression of conservative thought ever. Now with an updated user interface and exciting new features, also available in the Apple App Store and now available for Android, Snippy is your new alternative social media. We've continued to manage the investigation as we have in the past, and uh, it's being handled appropriately. It's Bob Mueller or uh, Rod Rosenstein or Matt Whitaker or Bill Barr, that investigation is going to be handled appropriately by the Department of Justice. The investigation is being conducted in accordance with the Department of Regulation, uh, and uh, nothing anybody says is going to uh, affect that. So I believe that that investigation is being handled appropriately under the existing Department of Regulations. So there's all this consternation now from the left. That was Rosenstein there talking about this, the DOJ, about Bill Barr, about Matt Whitaker. Let, let's break this down. Uh, because they they show who they really are in this process. We get a real understanding of the liberal mentality throughout all of this because they're not be I mean they're not honest players in this, and they don't have any consistency. There's no principle on display. Let me explain. Let's start with uh, Matt Whitaker. Okay, Whitaker was is the acting attorney general. And the big problem they have with him is that, as we all know, the Mueller probe just grinds on, continues to be a dark cloud hanging over the Trump administration, bankrupting people, prosecuting people for trivial crimes, uh, pretending that crimes that have never been prosecuted or rarely prosecuted are all of a sudden huge deals because of Trump. You know, I mean, the selective prosecution that's been on display in the last two years has been insidious. This is the most clear period in my memory that we've seen that the the left operates with a double standard of justice, that any time a Republican can have the law used against him by those within the government bureaucracy, it somehow happens. And on the other side with Democrats, they always get the benefit of the doubt or they just get a get out of jail free card. I mean, in the case of Hillary, it's a get out of jail free card. Uh, but with Whitaker, they're very upset because he had said in, in private life, uh, he had been critical of the Mueller probe and had said that, you know, it would be possible to defund it. Uh, they were saying, oh, this is terrible. Now Trump, unlike all the presidents before him, uh, Trump would not be allowed to have a, an acting uh, cabinet level official while he, while he got a new one in place. Uh, because they were just essentially changing the rules all of a sudden. You know, you, you could only have somebody who already had the advice and consent of, of the Senate in that role. It just, it just didn't make any sense. You'll notice how it kind of fell away, and, and now it looks like Whitaker is, in fact, 
going to be the uh, act is the acting attorney general, and they've got this guy. Did I say Bob, Bill Barr? I might have said Bob Barr. Bill Barr, who is uh, slated to be the next attorney general. Now, Bill Barr is a guy that, when Trump nominated him, and this is why you have all this uh, th- th- this anger coming out of libs uh, late in the game here. When Trump nominated him, it was like, okay, well, you know, he had been the attorney general under the Bush admin, uh, under a, a previous Bush administration. And he is a very well-respected guy in terms of his his ethics, his jurisprudence. And, you know, he's just a guy who the establishment could not tear apart. Okay, he's a guy that the establishment was not in a role and the Democrats could not credibly point to and say that he's he's some sort of Trump outlier because he had served successfully um in the in the bush administration so you know this is a guy who there's nothing they can say about him that does not show what their true feelings are which is that they they know this i mean deep down whether they say it out loud or not they know that Mueller is a weapon against trump that Mueller's top people weissman and others they they are weapons against trump and this is the most effective opposition they could muster against Trump. It's not at the it's not at the ballot box. You know, they couldn't take the Senate in the midterms. It's 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 not going to be, I think, at the ballot box, even in 2020. They're trying to use the law to get for them. And really, it's not even the law. It's the prosecutor's office. That's different. The law would require the usage of, of principle, the application of legal principle uh, which I would be in favor of. But no, they're looking for the application of prosecutorial discretion in their favor, which is a different thing. Right? They're, they're hoping that essentially the prosecutor's offices can be harnessed in an anti-Trump crusade, and that's why the special prosecutor is so, so useful for them. I mean, do, do, we, do we not see a pattern here, folks? Just stepping back from all this for a, for a second, you know, Trump beats Hillary and, oh, it's because of Russia and because Trump cheated. Bush beats Gore. Oh, it's because of the Supreme Court in Florida and they cheated. We don't pull the they cheated card in presidential elections. We just say, all right, you know, Romney lost. McCain lost. We are willing to be big boys and girls about this. With the left, there's always an excuse. There's always, oh, it's because of voter suppression. Where was the voter suppression happening? Somewhere, why are you so racist and xenophobic? Why do you hate everything? It's well, that, that's not really an argument you're making. Right? You're, they're just they're just throwing emotions out there and, and slandering half of the country because half the country does not agree with them about what the government should be doing and about the relationship between citizenship, uh, citizen rather, and the government. Uh, but now the now Barr is coming up for. Um, is coming up for criticism because he wrote a memo, a memo that said, it was a 19-page memo that he submitted unsolicited to the Department of Justice in which he said, okay, look, uh, the obstruction construction that Mueller is working under here, this idea that it would be possible for Trump to obstruct the Department of Justice by firing someone that he can fire for any reason or no reason. This is very important. He he has a, a constitutional right to fire. He had one and has one 
to fire James Comey from being the FBI director because he does not like Comey's tie. Which, there are much better reasons not to like Comey, but he could do that. So how are you going to say that someone is obstructing justice by firing someone that they can fire for any reason? You know, he he's, he's correct. He is correct. And he also has a problem. You know, this is all this, this unsolicited memo that he sent to the Justice Department. Uh, you know, he, he has a problem with this notion that they can create a, a legal protection for somebody within the Department of Justice that would make them unfireable, that Congress could do that. No, you, you, you cannot do that. Uh, that. That is violating the separation of powers. But because he has these good faith legal objections to what's going on that he voiced, now they're saying that that he's they're going to say he's an unfit attorney general. Meanwhile, we all know that if he had said the special counsel is doing great work, it's it's fantastic and Mueller is above reproach, they would say that that's all fine. But isn't that unfair to the administration in some way? Right. Why is it that any criticism of what the Democrats like must be recused or is recusal worthy, but support of things that they like, support of their position is just what what is what is right. You know, that, that's what needs to be. That's the way things should be. And we all oh, with, with Whitaker. Speaking of recusal, there's a story out today in The Washington Post that says, remember, he's just the acting attorney general. Barr is supposed to replace him when he can get Senate confirmation in the new year. And there's going to be, oh, get ready for, you know, I am Spartacus part two with Cory Booker. I mean, there's going to be a lot of grandstanding from the Democrats there. They're going to be really strutting their stuff. But Whitaker isn't recusing himself from the Russia collusion probe. And Democrats are all upset about that. Meanwhile, I'm sitting here saying they have nothing to be upset about in any in any normal universe because there is absolutely nothing absolutely nothing that Whitaker, I think, is going to do that would shut down this or or will stop this at this point. It's, it's too late in the game. But special counsels can drag on for years and years and years, you know, just looking and looking and looking. I mean, th- th- this is what prosecutors do. This is the prosecutorial mindset. So when a DOJ official has opinions that don't line up with what Democrats want, there's a problem. It's unethical. They're not allowed to hold that different opinion but apply the law. This is the same thing you see with Supreme Court nominees. There's no litmus test that Democrats have for Supreme Court nominees, except you have to be pro-abortion. You have to uphold the moral and legal monstrosity that is Roe v. Wade. But but there's no litmus test. There's, there's no ideological test for Supreme Court nominees. We're seeing an ideological test for the Attorney General. And the ideological test is you have to be supportive of the insane Russia collusion conspiracy theory. You have to be supportive of Mueller's bare-knuckle, take-no-prisoners, highly politicized tactics. You have to be totally fine with Sally Yates and McCabe and Comey coming up with completely bizarre interpretations of law and circumstances to go after people like General Flynn with with the Logan Act or by saying that he had been compromised, so now the Russians might be able to blackmail him. I mean, this was idiocy, idiocy from these people. But, but you know, that's the way it is. When Democrats like it, the person in power, you know, when they like what the person in power thinks, they're, they're fit for the job. 
when they don't like something that the person that's going to be in power or have prosecutorial discretion says, then, then they're unfit for the job. You see, that's what they say. Then they're unfit. And this then just reminds me of a, of a dispute that I've been having uh, for the last day or so on Twitter with a whole bunch of different journos and lawyers and so-called NATSEC experts, national security experts. I just keep saying, and this is not a, this is not a complicated or controversial point of view, but I, I know this to be true and feel very strongly about it that they that, that nobody should subject themselves to FBI questioning without counsel, essentially without having a lawyer present or at least getting a lawyer's advice about what's going on. No one should do that. It is unwise. And you get all these people coming out of the work. Oh, why are you making excuses for Flynn? And it's so stupid. And why are you doing that? And just don't lie. Just don't lie. Just don't lie. And I say to them, well, if, if the answer is just don't lie, why does anybody have a lawyer when they go for an interrogation with the FBI? Just don't lie. Maybe there's something else that they should be aware of, which is that the FBI, because of the nature of what they're doing and the power they have, is a threat to people who intend to tell the truth, but can get caught up in the heat of the moment in a in a interrogation, can have a, a memory lapse. And the amount of faith and trust that liberals all of a sudden give to these institutions of law enforcement at the federal level that have so much power is jaw-dropping. Keep in mind, the only record of the Flynn conversation we have is what the FBI says it is. And now they're saying it, you know, how, how many months after the fact? But it's it's now controversial. They hate Flynn and, and Trump so much that me saying, get a lawyer, don't talk to the FBI, which any defense attorney in the country who is not a complete moron will tell you is sound advice. They come after me. They, they pile on. They say, oh, you're, you're one of those lackeys for Flynn. No, I'm not a lackey. I'm just telling everybody, don't speak to the FBI without a lawyer. Don't try to get cute. Don't think that you're going to be doing some great public service. If they are interrogating you, have a lawyer present. This is sound advice. Do not listen to the idiots out there that think that this is about General Flynn. Flynn just raises the issue. It's a bigger issue. And it's one that you will be very well served if you listen to me on. Well, this is a very bold move for President Trump. It's exactly what he promised the American people. In fact, it's one of the reasons he won the election, is that he's different than so many Republicans that want to be everywhere all the time around the world, that they want us to be the world's policemen, that every war on the planet we've got to have our soldiers involved with. President Trump said he was going to treat America first. And so I think bringing some of that money home, whether it goes towards border security, whether it goes towards building bridges and roads in our country. See, I think there are a lot of independent voters and a lot of people in the middle in these states that President Trump won, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. These are states that no other Republican won because they want to be at war everywhere all the time. President Trump said, we're going to fight when we have to, but when we win, we're going to come home. It's an incredibly bold maneuver. All of the naysayers in Washington will be against him. But guess what? If you ask the American people, this is why President Trump won the election. I couldn't agree more with the president's decision. Look, uh, by definition, this is the opposite of an Obama decision. Obama got us involved. Trump's taken us out. Congress has never declared war or authorized the use of military force in Syria. We shouldn't be there anyway. The pullout from Syria. 
getting a lot of attention. And I have to say, I was a little bit concerned initially that this was, if not intentionally, at least in reality, distracting from the discussion that we need to be having about the shutdown and, and the border wall, right? That all of a sudden there was all this focus on what's going on in and around Raqqa instead of what's going on, you know, in and around, uh, you know, Laredo and the different sectors of, of the uh, of the border. Um, well, I was just trying to think of some place. I couldn't think of anywhere with an R along the border off the, off the fly. Uh, and I know Laredo is, you know, you're like, why, why'd you go with that one, Buck? I don't know. It just came to mind because I probably should have said, uh, what's what, John, what's the, uh, the city that's across from Juarez? That's the one I was trying to think of. Do you know what's across from, you know, the one that's right there. Isn't that, uh, El Paso. I don't know. El Paso. Thank you, John, you know, good man, good man. Um, but there's been all this focus on Syria. So I want to, in, in, in the spirit of giving you as, as much worthwhile information as I can, I mean, I want to tell you what the, the upside is of pulling out of Syria and the downside is of pulling out of Syria. But I'll start with the, with the upside of it. Um, and, and I think that there you had two senators, Mike Lee and Rand Paul, who were saying that just on, on, a, on a principle uh, level, we shouldn't be involved in endless conflicts all over the world in places where there has been no congressional authorization and in places where, our, you know, U.S. interests are are limited at best. And you know, right now, I understand it's easy to it's easy enough to look at what's going on in Syria and to say, you know what, uh, the, the truth is that in Syria, uh, you know, we're we're not taking a lot of casualties. We're not uh, doing a ton of frontline combat. I mean, I know there's stuff going on with special operations. But, we, we, you know, it's not like we're moving division level units around in theater. And so it's easy to start to think, well, this this is relatively low cost, at least in terms of our soldiers getting wounded or killed, which is the single most important consideration uh, about these kinds of deployments that we should have. And, you know, I just remind everyone that it, all it takes is one big truck bomb to get parked or, you know, driven into a, a facility with U.S. troops and you could lose 100, 200, 500 troops in in one day. I mean, that has happened before. Think back to Reagan's intervention in Lebanon, right next door to Syria in the Levant. And and Reagan ended up pulling out. We were like, you know what? This is this is a nasty civil war. This is not our thing. We're, we're out. Um, and I think that under the circumstances, he made the right move. We, we could always make a case to stay forever. You know, we could always make the case that American troops will make a country uh, safer than it would otherwise be. We can make a case that it would make it less likely for a vacuum to be filled by uh, nefarious outside actors. And, and I, I want to, I'm going to continue on with this in just, in just a moment, team. So stay with me. This is a huge strategic mistake that I hope the president is willing to reconsider. And if he does not, I, I believe with some degree of confidence that he'll come to regret this decision. I mean, clearly, we're repeating the Obama mistake of premature withdrawal, which got us ISIS. It is a misstatement to say that ISIS is defeated in Syria. What is accurate is we have destroyed their safe haven in Raqqa, and we have now taken down a town of Hajin which we, ISIS put up a fight for over two months, 
which demonstrates their determination and resilience. And they have, they, there's remnants of ISIS still in the area. In my judgment, we need to stick to it and finish the job. All right, so let's get to the, the other side of this, this Syria withdrawal decision. Um, and, and that is the, the possibility that this will lead to a rebound with the Islamic State. And then we'll be dealing with the nightmare once again of a caliphate that, remember, wasn't just a threat to the region, but very quickly turned into a launch pad for international terrorist attacks, uh, including some of the mass casualty attacks that happened in Europe uh, and the inspiration for mass casualty attacks like the one in San Bernardino, California, the one at the Pulse nightclub in Florida, here on U.S. soil. That that beacon of jihad in Syria that the Islamic State formed had a very bloody cost well outside of the Syrian theater of operations. So I, I understand that threat and that concern. That's the the primary reason that I think people are worried about us pulling out from Syria too quickly. Now, I do believe that it would be possible to phase out and that's what the president may say, right? He said, all right, we're pulling out. I, I think he's going to revisit this and say, we are pulling out, but we'll give this, you know, two months to get down by 1,000, another, you know, month to get down by 500. I, I think he's going to do a phased withdrawal. I, I don't believe, and this is just my, this is just my gut, I don't believe that he's going to say, all right, everybody, you're out of there, you're, you're done, um, because there could be some some bad ramifications to that, which is what we're talking about now, right? On, on the plus side, we shouldn't be fight. Uh, you know, we we've done a lot to defeat the Islamic State. This and this is there's a lot of debate about this because the president said, you know, we've defeated ISIS, and now you've got all these people who are coming out of the woodwork and saying, no, we haven't defeated ISIS. Yes, the estimate of the standing strength of the Islamic State's fighters is about twenty to thirty thousand which is pretty close to what it was at the start of the uh, blitzkrieg into Iraq from Syria next door by the Islamic State. But the territory is much smaller, which means their ability to draw upon resources and to terrorize civilian populations is much less than it was. They are a much more contained threat than they were. And if, if defeat is eradication, I'm here to tell you that we're never going to get there. I mean, not in any reasonable time frame. If if the defeat of the Islamic State is something that we could only we could only claim when there is nobody who is an adherent of ISIS and its ideology left, when everyone has either been captured, killed, taken off the battlefield in one way or another, uh, then we're going to be fighting in Syria for the next twenty years. So that's that's a you know that, that's an unrealistic definition of what success in Syria would be. Uh, that's an unrealistic you know, version. And we, we have taken Raqqa, their capital, and this has been done largely because of the Kurds. Now, uh, there's another component of this. I mean, you've got the vacuum issue. Uh, what would happen if we pull out too quickly and then all of a sudden there's space for ISIS to rearm and re-equip and start terrorizing villages in the area, taking back territory. But keep in mind, they have... Assad and Russia and Iran backing Assad also pressuring the Islamic State. So it's not like they would just be able to you know, overrun the whole country. The Syrian Defense Force, uh, Syrian Defense Forces, the SDF, is about 70,000 people right now. I mean, they've got a considerable fighting force that's had a lot of U.S. assistance and 
military tutelage. So that is hopefully able to uh, keep things from boiling over in Syria. But then there's a there's an additional layer, right? We're talking about Syria, talking about the civil war, there's a lot of complexity here. There's an additional layer, and that is how does Turkey, our so-called NATO ally, right? I mean, they're an ally, kind of. Turkey, uh, I, I, people who have been listening to me for a long time know I've had I've had problems with the Turkish government, Turkish regime for a very long time. Uh, the Turks have been, they're not quite at the Pakistan level of frenemy, but they're trending in that direction. I mean, they do some things that are helpful. They do a lot of things that are not helpful. And they are far too cozy with Islamists and extremists uh, in the whole region. Um, so, and they have, and they have grandiose ambitions for, for Turkish regional hegemony. Don't, don't think they don't. The Turks have a very high opinion of their importance, uh, to the, to the Mideast and to the Mediterranean basin. But Lindsey Graham and Bob Corker raise an- another concern here, and it's about Turkey. Play, uh, play clip five. Iran's going to be really happy, and the ISIS folks have got a shot in the arm, and Turkey is licking their chops. If you're an American who believes that we need to keep the war over there, not here, bad day for you. I think we're all just in shock that we would leave the SDF hanging, um, the Kurds and others who've been doing what they're doing, to leave them to basically um, Assad and to Turkey. Now, I have a degree of, uh, a particular degree of respect and even some nostalgia for my time uh, with the Kurds. And, and I know that the Kurdish people have been allies to the U.S. in Iraq and now in Syria when we really needed allies on the ground in the region. Uh, and the Kurds will fight bravely. Uh, the Kurds have been operating a, a civilized sector of Iraq, even through the, the worst parts of the insurgency. I mean, you could go to Kurdistan, which is not officially a place, but it might as well be. Uh, you spend time in places like Erbil or uh, Suleimania, and you might as well, I mean, the Turks wouldn't like this, you might as well be in Turkey in terms of safety and you know the overall uh, feeling of the place. And that's a testament to the Kurdish people. They've been very strong counterterrorism allies with with us. They've been doing a lot for us for a very long time. And I think we have a debt of honor to the Kurdish people. And the Turks hate the Kurds. This stretches back for many decades. It's a longstanding ethnic and cultural conflict. And there's been a Turkish separatist, I mean, a Kurdish separatist movement in southern Turkey that's claimed many thousands of lives over the over decades uh, fighting against them. The, you know, the PKK, they're kind of a Marxist separatist group. And the, the, the Turks are just get apoplectic about them. They say they're terrorists, just like any other terrorist group. Meanwhile, the militia that we're fighting with on the ground in Syria, the Turks say it, it, it is essentially this this Turkish, uh, this Turkish, I'm sorry, Kurdish terrorist group. We say, no, that's not fair, and and these guys are doing great fighting against the Islamic State. Uh, So there is this concern that that the Turks, if we don't have U.S. troops there, the Turks are just going to come in and and have a real incursion and kill a lot of our Kurdish friends on the ground. And I I find that unacceptable. But if we don't have U.S. troops there, because here's the thing, that the Turks launch an airstrike at at a U.S., Kurdish base in Syria and they kill some of our people, they have a 
massive problem on their hands, and they know that. And, you know, the next time a Turkish plane flies over Syrian sky, it's, uh, it's probably not going to, let's just say it's not going to land as planned. Uh, the Turks know that. So that's, you know, that's the, the bulwark, that's the, the, the safety measure that's in place there for Kurdish allies. If, if we pull out U.S. troops, now the, now the Turks all of a sudden might say, you know what, yeah, America's going to complain about it, but as long as we don't kill any of their people on the ground, if we're just killing Kurds, that's our problem, we care about it more. And, you know, Erdogan is a very unsteady ally. So, so I understand that concern and i'm very sympathetic to that concern because i i think that we show you know we show allies one because of honor but also because of the optics of it to the rest of our allies in the region around the world how we treat them matters you know what we do to our allies real allies that are doing fighting they're taking losses fighting side by side with our people it, it matters how we treat them uh, so the, that that's a that's a that's a sticky issue. Um, uh, that, that's a, a complicating factor in this whole uh, Syria withdrawal issue. And you know, then you've got um, Rubio and Graham who are just completely, uh, utterly opposed to this and say it's a it's a horrible idea. Play eight. I believe it is a catastrophic mistake that will have grave consequences for the United States, for our interests, and for our allies in the months and years to come. To those who say, we have defeated ISIS in Syria, that is a inaccurate statement. They have been hurt, they have been degraded, and I give the president all the credit in the world for changing our policies regarding the fight against ISIS, but I will not buy into the narrative that they have been defeated in Syria, Iraq, Defeat is not something you're really going to see with an insurgency like this. Suppression and stabilization is what you should be shooting for. Um, I, I think that Trump is right on the strategy. I think he might be wrong on the timing. Meaning we should begin to think about withdrawing U.S. troops from Syria and put in place how that's going to happen. That's a, and, and people should know that that's going to happen. Um you know, the people that are involved there should understand that they're going to be coming home. And we will have troops next door in Iraq. If things really spiral out of control, we've got 5,000 troops in Iraq. Can launch airstrikes, can do all kinds of things. And I'm sure that even if we officially withdraw, we'll probably have some, you know, some folks left behind to uh, work with our allies that just aren't particularly publicized uh, in Syria. But Trump is right to stop this this mentality of, we're going to be in these countries forever. We got other things to do, other places to have our people. We should not fall into this trap of endless war in countless places. So maybe give it a couple more months. I think Trump may do that. But by and large, we do need to come out of Syria. He's getting bad advice. They know that he's promised not once, not twice, but three different times mm -hmm. that he would get border wall funding. And here we are about to punt. And I would argue it's not a punt. 
a punt actually helps improve the field advantage. This is a fumble, and we need to make sure that the president stays firm. And a lot of people are, are, are very nervous this morning about mm -hmm. whether the, the president will cave or not. We failed. We fumbled. And I can tell you that the president was exactly right on this. I talked to the president a week ago, and he says, Mark, what we need to do is go ahead and pass something out of the House. I got on the phone that morning. I talked to Leader McCarthy. I talked to Speaker Ryan. I said, let's go ahead and fund the wall, mm -hmm. whether it's $5 billion or $25 billion. Let's go ahead and pass something out of the House. And you know Good. what we heard from that? Nothing. We had yeah. more than 29 more Republicans than Democrats last week. Right. We could have passed it, and we didn't. Could have passed it and didn't. Missed opportunities. You know, the, the truth is that you never want to do what your enemy wants you to do. And I know people say, oh, Buck, don't call the Democrats enemies. You know what I mean. You don't do what your opponent wants you to do if you plan on winning. And the Democrats, sure as heck, do not want Trump to get that wall. Because they know that if he gets the wall, 2020 becomes a replay of 2016. And if that happens, and you add the actual construction, the ongoing construction of a wall into that situation, absent some, you know, horrific economic situation or, you know, who knows, but in, in, a, in all likelihood, Trump will coast to victory. Uh, Trump will probably even, you know, I don't know what other states he'd pick up, but he might even win everything he won in 2016 and add a couple more into the mix. Certainly, uh, certainly feasible. Could certainly happen that way. So that's why, you know, this is not the time to get weak need. This is not the time for spines to go like jellyfish. And I think Mark Mark Meadows understands that, and he, and he knows um, that this is this is the time to have this fight, and that border security really matters. You know, we're just I was just talking to you about uh, about Syria. And I, I can't help but notice how many people whose, whose role in public life is to try and inf inform people and, and analyze uh, what's going on with our government. And they, they are so much more concerned with Syria and the, you know, the, the threat to you know, our, our allies in the region, the threat to Israel next door, the Iranian expansion that would occur if we so much more concerned about that than what is going on at our border. And and I, I keep hitting on these points about look at what the cartel activity is doing. Look at all the deaths, you know, for every person that dies of a drug overdose. There are a, a number of people whose lives are shattered, family members, spouses, children, lives are shattered, you know, mothers and fathers that are now walking around bearing those emotional, those psychological scars. Their lives are never the same. I mean, the cost of the situation, the border to the American people is so much greater than the stakes for what's happening in Syria. And yet we're told that funding for Syria is a, or for funding for the, the wall, rather, funding for the border is a distraction. Staying the course in Syria, staying the course in Afghanistan, too. That's more important than what's going on on our own southern border that's affecting lives across the country every day, economically, politically, national security. I also have seen this, this rumor that's getting some play today that Trump also wants to pull troops out of Afghanistan. 
got to tell you something. We are not going to win the war in Afghanistan if we think we're going to eradicate the Taliban. That's never happening. It's not happening. So the choices are status quo occupation for for all time, uh, essentially establish a major military base or bases there and just keep people, keep U.S. troops there on an ongoing basis or come home. Those are the choice. There is no victory over the Taliban. Not going to happen. Trump is willing to make tough choices on this, I think. And it may take someone as immune to the criticism of elites as Trump to finally do what so many of his predecessors said they would do, draw down these wars, and did not. Another rough week for Facebook, and Twitter's had a bad month. Guess what, folks? The word is out. Social media platforms are biased, and they are left-leaning. They're run by progressives who don't think that you should be able to say and think what you want. Snippy.com has none of those problems. Snippy.com is a new social media platform that is all about conversation and community. Thousands of my listeners have already joined Snippy and they're expressing their opinions every day. You should join them. It is completely free. This is a free service, free product, free to post, free to start your account. So you got nothing to lose and a lot to gain. You may find that Snippy is now your favorite place to engage other like-minded patriots. S-N-I-P-P-Y.com. Just go to the website, check it out for yourself. No shadow banning and no suppression of conservative thought ever. Now with an updated user interface and exciting new features, Also available in the Apple App Store and now available for Android, Snippy.com is your new alternative social media. 36-year-old Gustavo Garcia, a career criminal, a violent offender with priors and two deportations. Now, instead, the law forced him to release Garcia, leading to this. Two dead, a car chase, and a shootout with police. Police picked up Ruiz uh, high on drugs on Friday. Seeing his prior deportations, ICE issued a detainer. But 10 hours later, the sheriff released him because the sanctuary law banned him from honoring that detainer. Released, Ruiz stole 300 rounds of ammunition, shot six, killed two, then injured three more before dying in a car chase. None of which would have happened, says the sheriff, without this law that prohibited him from communicating with ICE when a criminal alien is released. That tool has been removed from our hands. And because of that, our county was shot up by a violent criminal that could have easily been prevented had we had the opportunity to reach out to our fellow counterparts. You mean that sanctuary city policies come with a cost? Illegal immigration isn't just about an endless flow of hardworking, God-fearing valedictorians that if you don't want here, you are a, a heartless, evil heathen? What a surprise. Well, what does this tell us? What, what should we be discussing when it comes to immigration and the border? I want to bring somebody on who's down uh, in Texas, so he can give us his perspective on things. The one and only Jesse Kelly. He is a former Marine, also former congressional candidate, and he hosts a wonderful radio show himself on 950 KPRC in Houston, the Jesse Kelly Show. Jesse, good to have you back. It's great to be here, man, and it is it is extra bad, extra horrible when somebody who's not supposed to be here does something terrible to a citizen of this country or multiple citizens, and it's extra, extra bad when you realize that we actually had him. We had him in our hands in insane liberal laws 
kicked him right back out on the street to kill again. And none of these people are ever held accountable for what they do. Well, that's ex- that's exactly where I want to go with this. Is that I I keep trying to 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 hammer this point that liberals start with a a fundamentally false premise on, on illegal immigration, uh, and that is that there is no downside to this. And and it's it's a it's astonishing, Jesse, because when you when you push them on specific issues. You know, yeah, you'll get them to admit you'll get them to admit that, OK, sure, there are some MS-13 members that come to the country. There's some drug cartel activity, but they always start from this premise of no, 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 this is this is a good thing. And then when you look at sanctuary city policy, you look at what's going on at the border day in and day out with people who are coming in, abusing the system, claiming asylum who shouldn't get it. There are a lot of costs here. And yet the other side never even discusses the cost. I mean, you'll notice this. You never hear Democrats say, you know what, you're right. It's putting a strain on some communities to have so many illegal immigrants coming in. It's it's hurting uh, Americans who are dying by the tens of thousands now from opioid or overdoses, which are overwhelmingly drugs from the cartels. They, they, they don't even start from a place of honesty in this conversation. They don't, because honest, if they were honest about it, you know you have to secure a border. That's not even a Republican or Democrat thing, or at least it used to not be. I mean, people seem to forget, like in the 60s, in the 50s and 60s, and before that, both parties were strong border security parties. This is not the normal Democrat party. This party has just simply gone insane. Every country in the history of the world has acknowledged they have to secure a border. A border is part of what makes you a a sovereign nation. Only this modern-day insane Democrat Party has gone this route. And it's sad. It's sad to see because it's really an impossible win. It makes it impossible to ever get any real border security when you're constantly fighting half the country who wants the border wide open. And I was just watching earlier today to see it so so I could keep tabs on what's going on with Congress and this possible shutdown. And and Shepard Smith was uh, was on his show and and he just just dropped casually in in his conversation with one of his guests. He goes, well, experts say walls don't work. And, and I keep hearing this from people as though this is a diff- like, like the science is settled. Walls don't work. I have personally been told by the head of Border Patrol, by the head of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, that a wall would be very helpful. So do, do you who are these experts? I mean, are we just talking about? you know, open borders activists and, and people that are, are funded by, you know, the Open Society Foundation? Like, who are these border experts that say walls don't work? I actually applaud him because he found the same experts. This is the Obama model. Obama used to do this all the time of, well, all the experts say that I'm 11 feet tall and bulletproof. And nobody ever would ask him, okay, which expert? That's not nearly all the experts. Saying walls don't work is the dumbest thing in the history of mankind because every single society in the history of the world has had some sort of wall and barrier, specifically because they work. If they stopped working, I'm pretty sure humanity would have stopped using them about 5,000 years ago. Yeah, walled cities were really the, the, the basis of modern civilization for a long time. So, yes, it is true. People could storm the walls. They could use battering rams. They could tunnel under them. But they weren't like, you know what, we're going to give up this whole wall idea. <laughs> this just isn't working. It, it is crazy. And that's the next route they go. And it makes their original argument sound even worse when they say, well, they'll, they'll ladder over them. Well, no one said it's foolproof. I mean, of course, you create new obstacles for them. And people do have to understand the walls are critical 
in the urban areas. Yeah, they're fine in the rural areas, but normally the Border Patrol has time to respond to the rural area. In the urban areas, you have to have a physical barrier. Otherwise, once they cross, they melt into the population and they are gone. You, If you do not have some sort of serious physical wall, fence, triple fence, whatever you want to call it, in an urban area, you cannot secure the border ever. Can't be done. I mean, Jesse, how long how long a drive are you from the border right now? I mean, you're down. You're actually in a border state, really the primary border state. Uh, you know, how long would it take you to get down there? I'm four hours from the border, and I ran for Congress back in Tucson, where I was an hour and a half, two hours from the border. And I've because of that run for office, I've spent plenty of time on the border and meeting with Border Patrol and so on. Um, so yeah, it's I, I've I've done enough border time to know you. You'd be really, really sad if you saw the way we protect this country. We, we hand- Yeah, that's. I was going to say, I'm sure you've been to the areas where it's like, hey, here's the border, and you could take a photo, and it's just, there's nothing there. There is. And you've seen, uh, everybody's seen, I'm assuming, Saving Private, Saving Private Ryan, and you've seen those basically steel beam X-looking things on the beaches when they land at Normandy. I am not exaggerating that is what consists of a border fence in several areas of at least the Tucson sector of the border, because we would have to go down there and tour it. And there'd just be miles for as mile as far as you could see that you or I or a two-year-old child could get through in a half a second. It's not even a barrier. I don't know why you don't just hold up a welcome sign. Jesse, very important question for you, switching gears for a second here. Um, what is the best season of narco so far? Speaking of the border. It's got to be the original. Now, I love the new Narcos Mexico because the Mexican cartel thing really, really fascinates me because people don't understand how new the idea of a Mexican cartel is. There have always been drugs there, and there have always been crime and corruption, but really an organized cartel did not start until the 80s there when they decided that that was a great place. They could, they could be powerful by running all the Colombian coke through Mexico. So I love the new Narcos Mexico, but the original one with Pablo Escobar. I eat up anything cartel, and Pablo Escobar is just a fascinating human being. Well, you know, the reason the Mexican cartel was so, the cartels, plural, were so successful, and I, and I keep trying to remind people that last year was the most violent year in Mexico's uh, modern history for murders. So the cartel activity is sky high. It's because there's so much money being made off of, well, a bunch of different drugs, mostly heroin and synthetic, those synthetic uh, variants, the opioids that, that they make. And the reason they can get into the country is because we got an unsecured border. It's a lot easier to bring it across the border than it is to fly it in from Cartagena or from Medellin or wherever. And so, you know, it just goes to show you that, in a sense, the drug war, the, the, the market has spoken. Our southern border is our weak underbelly. Because that's why the Mexican cartels are so powerful. They're 100% right. And, and it's funny you brought that up because the reason they are so powerful, the reason they became the trafficking area, was because we shut down Cuba. Cuba was the place where we were hauling in almost all the cocaine the United States was consuming, especially in the 1970s. Everybody's seen, you know, Miami Vice with the drug boats and stuff. I mean, that was real. Miami is built on cocaine money. That is a, it is, it is, that's for real. And we found a way to lock it down. And they looked around and saw, well, wait a minute. Why would we even mess around with Florida and the Caribbean and the boats and the Coast Guard? But we could just walk it right across the southern border. These idiots don't even guard the border. Yep. So, Jesse, 
before we let you go, because it's obviously about to be uh, Christmas, what is Christmas celebration like in the Kelly household? What What do you guys do? Do you do you mar- do you have your kids? You know, do lots of push ups. You guys watch football. What do you guys do? <laughs> you know, it's as unexciting now and laid back as ever. See, I always did the thing when I was a kid. If it was just me, my sister, my folks, laid back. But since I've been married, I've had to do the married. You're gonna you're gonna experience this, pal. I've had to do the married and married with kids thing. Where one year you have to fly back to where her parents are, the next year you fly to your parents, and it's and Christmas just sucks. Where you're traveling all the time. <laughs> Last year, I put my foot down. No more. We wake up. Kiddos open presents. Dada drinks a cup of coffee with some whiskey inside of it. We eat cinnamon rolls, and then we do a movie. Because no one else goes to the movies on Christmas Day, and all the good movies are out. We pick a movie, and we go around noon or one. What do you think? Do you know what the movie's going to be already this year? Aquaman. We already, I have, look, I have kids, so I'm limited to anything basically PG or roughly PG-13. So Aquaman. Aquaman, all right. You know, it made like $250 million in China, by the way. Well, any superhero movie makes big money now because it's, to be honest, it's one of the only movies that one, parents can take their kids to, and two, you don't get browbeaten with any politics of any kind. Not left, not right. You just go and just enjoy some dumb explosions and whatnot and walk out. It's just enjoyable what a movie's supposed to be. And what is the proper food to eat on Christmas Day? Well, Buck, you know I'm pretty classy, so I'll probably pick up a little Caesar's pizza, maybe with some crazy bread as well. Uh, I have no doubt we're going to be eating steak at some point in time. Don't waste your time with ham or turkey, people. That's a lie. If you say you'd rather have ham or a turkey over steak, you're a bald-faced liar. Wow. He's calling out He's calling out the, the roast ham, folks. Or the baked ham. Sorry, I keep saying roast ham. Baked ham. Baked ham. Uh, all right. Well, the United States of America would look at a baked ham and a sizzling prime rib and pick the baked ham. Nova. Jesse Kelly. Controversial, but truth-telling, as always. Jesse Kelly, everybody. Listen to him, 950KPRC in Houston. You can also follow him on Twitter. Look for his stuff on The Federalist. Jesse, Merry Christmas to you and yours, my friend. We'll talk to you in the new year. Merry Christmas, Roberta. You know, after I just talked to Jesse Kelly there, I remembered I, I had a an exchange with one of these uh, border bizarros earlier today. You may be familiar with someone by the name of Max Boot uh, these days, only because he is a, quote, former conservative who is now an unhinged Trump hater. In fact, he is such a Trump hater that on my show, where I am a conservative and sitting next to me is a a wonderful lady uh, named Crystal, who is very liberal, he thought that both of us, because we asked him real questions, must be, in his words, uh, you know, Trump bots using Trump talking points to undercut his arguments. Meanwhile, I mean, this guy's having essentially a public breakdown in front of the nation because he's no longer that important. Uh, However important he thought he was before when he was writing articles for uh, various neoconservative causes and publications, now as a Trump hater who has defected to the left, he's going to find that he's only useful to them for a short period of time and only as a weapon against Trump. But he appeared on my show this morning for his uh, book, The Corrosion of Conservatism, and we got to talking about the border. Now, I want you to pay very close attention to this exchange and just notice Does he answer the questions? Does he even try to deal with the substance or 
does he become smug and condescending despite the fact that his knowledge of immigration and the border is apparently very lacking? Play it. Well, in the first place, there is not a crisis at our southern border. Illegal immigration is down 80 percent from the year 2000. It is much lower than it was then. OK, pause for uh, a second. Pause we for do second. not have a crisis. OK, there's no crisis because he says immigration was a lot was a lot higher. Illegal immigration was a lot higher 20 years ago. Well, it's like, OK, doofus, let's let's take this piece by piece. First of all, illegal immigration via overstays of visas is uh, at a half a million a year. So you've got to count that into whatever figure you think you're giving me. And last month, there were 16,000 family units, about 50 or 60,000 people that showed up at the border who were claiming asylum. They are not counted as illegals yet because they are legally going through the process unless they are, in fact, caught entering the country illegally. If they turn themselves into a port of entry, they're not counted. But more to the point, we already have, he says 12 or 13 million. At least he got that one a little closer. It's more like 20 million. So we've already been flooded with illegal immigrants for almost the last, well, you call it the last 30 years since the last amnesty, uh, the last 20 years plus. And so now the argument is, well, there used to be more. That doesn't seem like a very good argument at all to me, but keep keep playing it, John. Uh, and we do not have a crisis. We should certainly have border security. Nobody argues for open borders. That's a myth that Donald Trump puts out there. Uh, but pause, I think what we pause, hold on. Uh People argue for open borders all the time. I know libertarians who argue for open borders. I spoke to activists on the street protesting Stephen Miller who were straight up saying they want open borders. Keep playing. We need to have is a path to legalization for the 12 to 13 million illegal immigrants already in this country because nobody is going to remove them, including Donald Trump. Uh, and I think we need to have continue with border security, maybe strengthen it a bit, although the wall is a farcical idea that would waste tens of billions of dollars that we don't have. Uh, so should, should we tear I, down the wall in San Diego where the caravan was recently essentially parked and stopped? Should we get rid of that wall too? Uh, well, again, you're you're making things up. There's not really a wall in, in San Diego. There is a small in the section. In San Diego of, sector, there's a border barrier that keeps people from crossing There's a very the small border barrier in uh, in San Diego, which is not related to Donald Trump's. Okay, Tony pause. To, to, two, to two things, pause here. Notice how, I mean, I'm referring to a wall. Yeah, it's a triple layer fence. It's a barrier. I mean, that's just that's just sophistry, right? He's just being a pain. This guy is a total jerk, by the way. He is the reason that so many people hate conservatism. Guys like him who aren't particularly eloquent or interesting and don't have nearly as wide a knowledge base as they seem to think they do. Uh, but yeah, so he wants to play semantics games with wall versus fence. That's really useful. And then he says it has nothing to do with Trump. That's obviously not the point. The point is he says a wall is farcical. Meanwhile, the wall in the San Diego sector has dropped illegal crossing 90%. Keep playing it. Phony promises to build a wall uh, along the entire length of the but border. But I, I just want to know why that wall works. $20 billion. Well, a wall, here, let me explain it to you in simple terms. You can have uh, appropriate uh, barriers in certain, and in certain places, maybe the appropriate barrier is a wall. But what Donald Trump was peddling was nonsense. This suggests that he okay, was... Okay, now we're back to Trump. This guy's unhinged. I'm just saying there's a wall that works in one place. Why are you saying a wall is a farcical idea in other places? No one's saying it's all going to be built at once. Anyway, this guy's a perfect example of it. Thinks he's smart, is actually a clown, is snide, and is a laughing stock now on both sides. So, Max Boot, you got booted, son. I've gotten pretty used to the president 
tweeting out some things that you you wouldn't necessarily expect the president of the United States to tweet. You know, I've definitely seen my fair share of things now from this president that I go, oh, wow, that is a thing that he just shared on the Twitter. Who knew? Who knew that such a thing could happen with the leader of the free world? But this one today was uh, one of those fun reminders of the fact that this president had quite a uh, quite a life as a celebrity before he became the president of the United States. This was from President Trump's own Twitter account, a throwback Thursday video clip he shared of him singing at the Emmys with Molly Mullally. Play it. Green Acres is the place to be. Farm living is the life for me. Land spreading out so far and wide. Keep Manhattan, just give me that countryside. That was President Trump singing. It's amazing. You know, I was just talking to some colleagues today about this at the Hill and how no matter what you think of the president, no matter how much you like the president's policies, ideas, demeanor, or or dislike it, he is and the whole situation is amazing. And uh, And we do live in, and I guess this is also one of those rare times where I'll stop and say, for all the problems that we have, for all the things that we talk about on this show that are are very real concerns, issues, things to tackle and fix, we are living in a period of amazing prosperity and, and relative peace. I was thinking today as I was uh, on my way to the office very early in the morning, and I won't lie, I was having a, a little pity party in my head for Woe is me, it's 5 a.m., I didn't get to sleep until past midnight, I'm tired, it's cold, it's still dark outside. And I thought, well, I'm going into a TV studio a few blocks from the White House in Washington, D.C., and if this had been a different time period, I could have, say, been a few days into the Battle of the Bulge, uh, which I'm sure many of you recall was a, a World War II battle that was during the fr- a freezing cold winter, December 16th, 1944, and it was the Nazis' last-ditch major offensive to try and turn the uh, tide of World War II in the Western Front. And I've, I remember interviewing a couple of survivors of the Battle of the Bulge and just how they, they couldn't get warm. They were cold all the time and there was always the threat of German artillery, German shelling and that's what they were living with day to day. So while I'm not a, I'm not generally somebody who says you know things could be worse, you could get eaten by a shark, uh, which is technically true. We are living in an amazing time, uh, a very interesting time, but also one in which we've had uh, incredible prosperity and this country for all of the all of the issues that need to be fixed and all of the areas of of uh, fear and injustice and and problems that we have this is an amazing time to be an american and we haven't been saddled with a a major uh global conflict so i just would note that we should all be a little thankful as we go into christmas 
even though I know it's not Thanksgiving. But you know what I mean, team. It's time for Roll Call. I can just feel that Christmas spirit in the air, team. It is It is here. It is upon us. We are in the home stretch. Soon we will be celebrating in whatever way we choose to celebrate. Man, Christmas time, it is here. I'm so excited. I'm going to sleep. I'm going to eat. I'm going to be with friends and family. And uh, it's been it's been quite a year. And then on New Year's Eve, I had this amazing plan that I want to share with you. Um, New Year's Eve, I'm going to just eat a really nice dinner and watch some stuff on TV and go to sleep around 11 (laughs) o'clock. That's my idea. Uh, Miss Molly's on board for it, too. That's my idea of a perfect New Year's Eve. I, I do not get all wrapped up. If you're going to a party, I hope you have a great time. I've just been to so many New Year's Eve parties, and I think that Second only to prom in high school, New Year's Eve is the most overhyped and most disappointing night that exists in in American culture. Uh, But let's get to your roll call thoughts. Mesa, first up. Hey, Buck, I've been listening to your show in bits and pieces for about a year. I catch it on my way home from work around 8 p.m. on talk radio. I'm just now figuring out that your show is a podcast, and now I listen to the whole show during the day while I drive my UPS truck. I'm just curious if you record it live. If so, what time? If not, what time and where do you release it? Right now, I'm listening on iHeartRadio and usually checking throughout the day to see if it's up yet. Sorry for the questions. Love your show, Mesa. Well, you know, Mesa, what it is is the show is a a live show, but there's a podcast of the show that's up after. And sometimes I'm able to do a little bit of the show, maybe some interviews here or there in advance. Um, But the whole show is on a podcast that you can listen to every day, and the podcast should go up a little bit earlier than the show finishes in your market. It depends on where you are. Um, but we should have the show up most nights by about, oh, 8 p.m. Eastern on the whole show, and we're trying to get it out earlier and earlier. Um, Marie, thank you for listening, by the way, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Marie writes, already awake and listening to last night's podcast, agree. Also sad about the wall and Trump dropping the ball. Tonight, while we listen and wrap gifts, we're going to have a little drinking game and take a shot of spiked eggnog. Every time you say, never forget Scooter Libby. Ha ha. Uh, you're right, Marie. I, I am particularly uh, irascible about the way that Scooter Libby was treated by the last special counsel. Seriously, he's important to you. Was the injustice against him something that gave you a heart for exposing wrongdoing? Inquiring minds want to know. Well, you know, Marie, I had to deal with the internal investigative bureaucracy in a few different ways during my time at, at the CIA and then at the NYPD. And there is this mentality for those who are lifelong bureaucrats that they do some great service by um, harassing and even sometimes terrorizing and destroying the careers of good public servants. Now, I was never on the wrong side of regulations or certainly the law at either institution, but I know what it's like when, for political reasons, you get dragged in the middle of something and people are trying to make a name for themselves and they forget that there's a process in place, but the end goal of that process is supposed to be justice and just the process itself is not the end in and of itself. 
so that's, I, I think, one way of... And, and then also just the the lies around the whole Scooter Libby thing. And people that were saying that he was a traitor and that he'd sold out his country. And there was no evidence for that whatsoever. And people still to this day, including journalists, some of whom I've come across who claim to have covered this case specifically, they think that Scooter Libby betrayed his country and lied. It's really hard to betray your country by outing someone who was outed by somebody else in a newspaper that has nothing to do with you, right? That would be a, it's a difficult thing to do, you know? It's a difficult thing to be the one who spills the beans when the beans were already spilled by somebody else, not by you. So I think that's a uh, pretty straightforward rundown of, of why it is that I feel that way. And and also just uh, Fitzgerald went after Conrad Black. He went after Scooter Libby. I mean, these there's a lot of these sanctimonious uh, Democrats in prosecutors trappings who go on these very high end uh, very high level political hunting expeditions, and it's a disgrace. And it makes me not trust the Justice Department, which is supposed to be the institution that I think we all, after the military perhaps, all have the most faith in its fairness. Uh, and I have almost no faith in the DOJ when it comes to dealing with highly sensitive political cases. I'm not talking about drugs and murders and things like that. They can handle that stuff just fine. Fortunately, there's not much of a pro-murder constituency out there, so it's not a political issue. Uh, but there is certainly a food fight that is underway right now over using corruption charges as a means of settling electoral scores. And I just, I find that really disturbing and, and it bothers me to no, no end. Um, but, you know, I, I've told you before about uh, the, the, the case that I was involved in, and I can't get into the specifics, but where someone who wasn't guilty of any terrorist wrongdoing and was a few people removed from an actual an actual bad guy, they were thinking about going after him. This is on the law enforcement side for a mortgage fraud. And the guy was uh, functionally illiterate and had actually paid all of the, you know, all of the mortgage debt on the pro or was, was paying it off on time and. Um, essentially was a straw purchaser, a straw mortgage purchaser for somebody else. And they were thinking about, you know, sending him away for, for 10 years uh, or at least charging him where he could. He wouldn't have gotten 10 years, but they would have charged him with a 10-year offense. And I just realized that people get so close to the bureaucracy and they become so enmeshed in their day-to-day -day and, and in their mission that they sometimes forget that you know, there are human beings involved here. And it's not just because it's the Christmas season, but Every season, we should remember you know, compassion and kindness and mercy. These are things that should never be discarded. Uh, these are not traits. These are not uh, ways of being that, oh, I'm just, I'm just a man doing a job should uh, eliminate your sense of decency to your fellow human beings. And, and mercy and compassion certainly go along with that. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I, I in a very different way, this is a much less serious thing, but I try not to go after people so much on Twitter, even though people come after me all the time. I try to make it about issues and things and thoughts because uh, I take no joy out of um, out of being nasty to people. Some people, you, you know, you need to you need to tune up a little bit, you need to give them a little verbal slap around. Uh, but for the most part, I, I try to avoid. I don't like dragging people who have said something stupid on Twitter. I, I don't like. Dragging them as a person, what they say, sure, but them as a person, you know, I don't make fun of people's appearance. I mean, I put these, 
These are guidelines in place. I'm not saying I'm perfect, and I certainly fall short of it sometimes, but we've it's important to maintain or, or to at least have those guidelines. You know, don't make fun of your political opponent's appearance. Don't go after you know their family or or make light of personal tragedy or you know th- these are important things for all of us. At least I believe. Richie writes, Buck, you're a good guy. Stay away from the scooters and out of communist West Hollywood. Also, make sure you watch the original Battlestar Galacta, uh, Galactica middle miniseries. It's not completely necessary for enjoyment, but I think it's important for the totality of the Battlestar Galactica experience. Honestly, I don't see you as a sci-fi type, and I bet you probably know nothing of the original ABC series, but one can hope. You know, Richie, I'm act- I just finished the uh, Battlestar Galactica miniseries. I finally figured out what I had missed, and I was able to watch it, and uh, I I so far really enjoy it. You know, I think some of the some of the CGI and the graphics are a little hokey. You know, they're a little bit a uh, little bit B team, but the the writing and the acting is is all pretty pretty solid. The writing is very solid. Some of the acting I think can be a little wooden, um, but overall I gotta say it's good. Uh, it's an interesting it's an interesting concept, and and I'm enjoying it, and I'm hoping to make it all the way through. Gerald and Leslie. Hey, Buck, I'm a big fan. I always listen to your podcast and heard you wanted to hear from Facebook peeps. I just wanted to say I love the show. You're definitely going to be the next Rush Limbaugh. I've been listening to him since I was 18. I'm 44 now. I appreciate your perspective, your 80s movie likes, and the fact that you like to cook. Me too. Thanks for being you. Well, thank you, uh, Gerald and Leslie. Uh, I'm assuming that's from... I don't know, actually. It could be from Gerald or Leslie, but it's very, very kind of you. Thanks for your your words about, you know, saying that I'll be that I could ever be even in the in the same conversation as Rush Limbaugh is like telling a, you know, a, a young NBA player that he could one day be like Michael Jordan or Rush Limbaugh. I mean, or <laughs> or Rush Limbaugh or LeBron James. Um, but that's very, very kind of you. I appreciate it and, and thank you so much for listening to the show. And uh, we've got we've got a lot of a lot of years of great show ahead. So if you've enjoyed it this far. Strap in, because the ride's going to be awesome. Ted writes, Buck, first time messaging anybody on the radio, but I have to get this off my chest. I originally began listening to you after hearing you on Rush. Plus, I'm tired of listening to conservatives hosts who feel uh, compelled to scream over the airwaves with their outrage. I turn them off. Overall, your program and format are informative and thought-provoking. Increasingly, however, I'm turning you off as you talk a particular issue to death Overtalk your analysis and drone on. Enough already. It is exasperating. Maybe picking up the pace would help. I'd also listen. I also refuse to listen to The Godfather uh, when he subs for you. In my opinion, hardly anyone more boring to listen to. I will continue to listen for now, Ted. Uh, well, Ted, I'll try to mix it up a little bit more for you, buddy. How about that? You know, some days it's a slow news cycle. Some days I try to get deep into the bowels of an issue, which I think people can either find uh, interesting or they can find it to be you know, too, too, too much, you know, TMI, as the kids say. Uh, but I, I do try to mix up the topics a lot. I mean, I think we cover a lot of ground over the three hours of the show. Um, you know, these days, I'll, I'll be honest with you, man. I, I'm, I get tired of having to talk about the Mueller probe. I think that in a sense, I'm kind of hostage to the news cycle in that regard, because it is what is out there and being talked about and is affecting and directing the political conversation, but there's generally not that much new stuff going on with it. And so you end up 
slicing the onion pretty thin. But look, you're a listener. You are sending me a critique in good faith. I appreciate it. Uh, all of you who listen, every one of you, you're the reason that I have this dream job of having a radio show. And so your thoughts are always appreciated. Um, and, and that includes, I, I have made, I can't even tell you how many adjustments. I've made countless adjustments to this show over the years uh, because somebody will write me and they'll say, you know, I'd like you to do this a little more or that a little more, a little less of this. And, and I read it and I realize, yeah, that's right. That criticism is right. So single individuals have written me either email or Facebook uh, and gotten me to make adjustments to the show. So I don't want you to think that I'm, I'm not paying attention. I am paying attention. Um, you know, for example, on impressions, there's some that you guys like, some that you're not as into, and you like you like them in, in pretty small doses, like a little bit of spice here and there. So I've scaled that back over the years as a result of audience feedback, because your feedback really does matter. I do this show for all of you who are listening, uh, which reminds me, tomorrow's going to be my last show of 2018. So send in your thoughts on Facebook and uh, also... Uh, we're going to open up the line so I can talk to you all, and maybe some of you want to wish me a happy birthday. So get ready for that. Tomorrow, we're going to open up the lines, take a bunch of calls, and going to have uh, a whole bunch of fun. So uh, I will see you then, or at least I'll talk to you then. Shield tie. I've got a conservative alternative to all those lib email services out there, ipatriots.us. You see, iPatriots.us doesn't share your data with third parties without your permission. It doesn't violate your privacy and scan your emails and do all this stuff and push liberal agenda items with whatever money they're making. No, no. iPatriots.us is a secure private email server that includes more of what you want without all the ads and spam. You'll get 30 gigs of cloud storage, larger attachment sizes, and much more. Your email and files are safe with iPatriot's premium antivirus, anti-spam encryption. They won't sell your information or support liberal items out there. That's the stuff that you just don't care about, all right? You want the best email service? Check out iPatriot's.us. It's compatible with most mobile devices. Show you're a patriot. Go to iPatriot's.us now. Choose your membership and input your desired email address during checkout. Enter promo code BUCK when you go to iPatriot's.us now for 10% savings during your first year of membership.